My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. My name is Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. We have a most excellent show uh, on deck today, don't we, Eric? I like your wording there. Our, our guest today needs no introduction, but I'm going to do one anyway. Uh, he has starred in such films as The Lost Boys, Freaked, Grand Piano, and can now be seen in Bill and Ted Face the Music, the highly anticipated third chapter in one of our all-time favorite film franchises. He's also an accomplished director whose latest documentary, Showbiz Kids, can now be seen on HBO, HBO Max, all the variations of HBO that are out there. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Alex Winter. Hello, hello. It's so good to be here. Yeah. Thank you, guys. How are you feeling about uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music, that rollout? Like... You, you guys are going video on demand, which, first of all, yes. I respect the hell out of. But this is like a movie that's been trying to get off the ground for a long time. Like, are you nervous? Are you what, what are you feeling? Uh, you know, it's funny. We we spent a lot of time getting this thing kind of off the ground and mm-hmm. it was a long time coming. Um, it took an enormous amount of work to do. And then it took <laughs> another gazillion years to actually get financed and, and put out into the world. So, I mean, I feel very, very excited about it. Um, I feel uh, very ready for it to not be in our hands and someone else's hands. Is really <laughs> the, the long and short of it. You're ready for the birth. In yeah. Way. Yeah. I mean, you get to a point where you just want people to look at it and see what they think. Yeah. You know? Well, we haven't seen it, obviously, yet. I think la- at some point last year, I-, I read the script, and it was a lot of fun. I have no idea if you know it's going to be the exact same s- thing on screen, but if it's even close, I think uh, I think people are going to dig it. It's uh, it's a f- it's a fun story. Yeah, I mean, we, we put a lot of effort into it um, in developing the story. That was a big part of what we were doing for so long and getting the script right and getting it to work and getting the characters to work. Mm-hmm. And kind of once we had that in a place that we liked it, it was really about protecting the script. We did make some significant changes as we shot just in terms of logic and, you know, the guys were writing more gags and things like that. But it's, sure. it's you know, we were very, very, very lucky to have Dean Pariso and Keanu and I both felt – Really in week one, well, we were felt this way in prep, but very concretely in week one that we were just in incredibly good hands and that he had both an ironclad lock on the tone, uh, which is quite complicated in the Bill and Ted movie, frankly. Yeah. You know, they're, they're weird movies and we like them weird, um, but we don't want them to be incoherent. So right. we just felt like he had our back, you know, to for let us kind of go off and do our thing and had a lock on the tone. So I feel really good about it. Uh, largely for that reason. Dean did, <laughs> Dean did Galaxy Quest, right? He did, yeah. Yeah. Fucking, is that movie is incredible. Yeah, like, it's a that, favorite. Oh, man. That's so good. So real quick, um, before we jump into Stephen King stuff, um, I, I interviewed Keanu for John Wick, and mm-hmm. it's like the only time I, I've ever met him. And I told him this story, and I want to tell the story to you too, uh, because I – it was a it was a, an awkward thing because I was the last interview of the day, but I wasn't 
I was on the publicist schedule, but I guess I wasn't on his personal schedule. So he was walking out ready to, to leave. Right. And they're like, oh, you got one more. And he was just, he's the nicest dude in the world. But even he was just like, I'm just ready to go. And so I'm like, great, this is an awesome way to start, to start an interview. <laughs> um, and uh, sat down and, you know, it was like, and I told him the story and like, he like started beaming and was super happy about it. But uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is one of my all time favorite movies. Um, oh, and it was, and it was a film that was tied into a big personal moment in my life because my, uh, you know, not to bring shit down, but like my biological father ran out on my, my mom when I was like six weeks old. Like I know ne- I never met him and my stepdad, uh, came into the picture and he legally adopted me, you know, and you know, I got his name and all that stuff. Uh, mm. and on, well, I think I was about 10 and on that day, we celebrated by going to see Bill and Ted's bogus journey. And so, you know, ever since then, you know, that movie's always been very special to me. And, uh, and I still think it holds up like in, in many ways, I think bogus journey goes further than, than the first movie. Oh, totally. uh, and, and, uh, for a long time, that was a very radical opinion, but I'm starting to see a whole lot of, uh, people, you know, show up with love for, for that now. That's funny. You say that. I mean, I've, I love both movies. Uh, I love Stephen Herrick. I think you know there would have been no second movie if he hadn't made the first one and and done such a great job with the first one. However, I do prefer the, the second one as well. Um, it's much more my sense of humor, and I just think that it swings for the fences in a way, and and it connects like it works, which is largely the credit of Chris and. And Ed, obviously, the two writers, Chris Matheson and Solomon, and Pete Hewitt, because um, we just kind of showed up and acted like idiots again. But it is just so imaginative. And when we were working on three, bogus came up quite a bit. And you know, there's a lot of of the of the spirit of one in this movie, so it's not like we're trying to be weird for its own sake. But um, I, I tend to think the folks that like bogus will definitely like this movie. So we'll see. Any it's- movie that has that has a killer uh, Easter bunny chasing people through hell. Uh, is uh, is aces right? in my book? <laughs> yeah, that's the and thing. It makes like, me happy that that it had that that bombing effect for you as a kid. Um, yeah. that's, <laughs> so, that's an added bonus. The first one, well, the first one's just like straight science fiction with the time travel, and the second one gets it a little more metaphysical with like hell and the Grim Reaper and shit. And that's why I, I think I prefer the second one too. You know, it's a little. It, it does expand. I agree with Eric. It it pushes the the whole property into like a a bigger realm and there's more room to play in that realm, you know? So it's, yeah, it's, it's more fun. I think. I think so too. I just think conceptually killing those two characters and making them find their way back to the world from the afterlife from heaven and hell. is just a, it's just a great concept. And um, I was very gleeful when, when I first heard it, I remember. Oh, and if we're, if we're giving shout outs here, I want to, while I've got you on the line, um, Freaked, which you starred in and directed, has one of my all-time favorite jokes in any fucking movie. And it's the, the part where uh, they're trying to be quiet and Randy Quaid is like sitting, you know, in the distance. And there's like a lot of noise being made, but then a styrofoam cup tips over and he's like, that sounds like a styrofoam. <laughs> like it's yeah. if if you've seen Freaks, you know what I'm talking about. Um, that kills me. And I think about that joke maybe like once a week for some reason. It's just really like burrowed under my skin. It's such a great gag. You have well, in fairness, you do have a lot of styrofoam cups falling over in your house. That's true. My whole house is is assembled from that's styrofoam funny. Cups. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, was one of my favorite 
gags as well. Um, that's that's a, a Tim Burns original, as I recall. He wrote the film with Tom Stern and myself, and Tom and I directed it. And uh, he's uh, he's got a really great sense of humor. Came up with a lot of my favorite weird jokes. Not that the movie's anything but weird jokes, but some of my <laughs> right, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, what's your Stephen King origin story? When did you start reading King or, or watching King? Beast? Um, I can. I really. It's funny when you first asked me to do this. It was a little while ago, and so it gave me an opportunity yeah. to go back and read Dead Zone again, which I hadn't, and watch the movie again. Obviously, um, neither of which I'd done in, in a really long time, and. I do remember vividly uh, my entree to King was the book of short stories. Uh, what is the heck are they called? Skeleton the, Crew? It's uh, no, it's uh, Night Shift. Night Shift? Night Shift. Yeah. Yes, and, um, and I read Night Shift when it came out in 77, 77, 78, 79. I was, I was really into King and Lovecraft and uh, I guess more so set a little bit later, 79, into high school, um, out of middle school and into high school. So uh, there was like a period of time when I was gobbling up a lot of his stuff. I think in that era, sort of late, early high school, the big ones for me were Night Shift and Carrie, Salem's Lot. Um, I'd never read The Shining when I saw The Shining. The Stand, I remember that took me a while to read. It's giant, giant. Right. Um, but I really loved King when I was when I was. I mean, I still like his writing a lot. Um, I really like his writing a lot. Like I think he's a master craftsman at story, uh, obviously. But there's a a subtlety and a and a kind of a personal quality to almost a confessional quality to his writing that I just have always really, really been inspired by. And I remember reading his book on writing, um, which is a really fantastic book. And oh yeah. I remember I read that as I was reading, I think I was reading uh it's Bag of Bones, right? Is that the name of it? Sometimes getting mm -hmm. yeah. Wrong. yeah. Um which was probably the last book of his I read and and just loving sort of the that he's you know he was still kind of bathing in these very personal observations and, and he fuses those together with, with, um, with these, you know, larger than life stories or supernatural or, or, um, you know, whatever the, or straight horror, whatever he's kind of working in. But, um, so I've always been a, a big fan and I've always felt like he was a kind of a, one of the 20th century's great master artists, um, who would live on because there was a personal quality to his, to his work that just felt very distinct. Um, and you really felt like you were in a room with him when you read mm -hmm. one of his books and it's, that's not easy to do. And it's the kind of art I tend to gravitate towards. So uh, he's always been a, a personal favorite. Do you have a favorite book or, or movie? Um, I think, I, I mean, he would hate this. My favorite, my favorite Stephen King movie is the shining. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah. I would say, Honestly, it's really by by head and shoulders above the rest. And yeah. I don't actually tend to love Stephen King movies. And I think it's partly because of of what I love about his writing. His writing is so personally idiosyncratic um, that I really miss. It's really hard to carry that over. I know he's always looking for, I mean, I presume he is. I don't know him, but just from reading interviews and things with him, it seems that he's always been searching for, a filmmaker or a, a director to, to adapt his work effectively. And he often feels um, like they missed the boat. 
but I think that like, from my perspective, it's not like he's looking for the wrong thing, but I, as a viewer, I'm looking for something I think different than what he's looking for, which is, which is I'm looking for a piece of art that's, that is as distinctly personal as his work is, which Mm -hmm. is what the shining is like the shining Stanley Kubrick is, you know, similarly a very personal idiosyncratic filmmaker whose work is very clearly his and has a lot of his personality infused in it. And the shining is Stanley Kubrick's Stephen King movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that about it. It's just great and weird and idiosyncratic. And I like all the things that are different than the book or they work and they're weird and they, but they have a purpose. Um, right. And it's not just a straight, you know, adaptation. I'd say my second favorite King movie is Carrie, which is the closest to me of like the spirit of King's writing on film yeah. and the, the sheer like, because De Palma is really good at at that kind of just volatile, almost vertiginous violence that comes out right. of left field, you know, mm-hmm, um, like the chainsaw scene in Scarface um, uh-huh. or the pig's blood scene in Carrie. And uh, that's very Stephen King, where you're just like, you know, you're hanging out with this guy, you know, he's nice, he lives in Maine, everything seems pretty normal, and then bam, you know, <laughs> some like very intense, violent thing occurs, and you're like, oh my god. And Carrie really has that. There's other movies that I like. I mean, I like Pet Cemetery, Mary Lambert's Pet Cemetery a lot. Mm-hmm. I lo- Misery, you know, Shawshank Redemption is a great movie in its own. Stand right. by me, stand, stand by, by me, me. great movie in its own right. Just a classic, beautiful film. Um, but The Shining and Carrie, are, in terms of like what I think of King being, those are the two standouts for me. I think. Yeah, perfectly acceptable answers. And I would add in the uh, the movie and book that you chose. Like I, I'm a huge fan of Dead Zone, and I yeah. And I, I really, I really love, love the movie. I love kind of how it adapts the book. Uh, I'm not sure if you do, you know, we haven't talked about that yet. Maybe you picked it so you can, uh, <laughs> you, you can run Cronenberg over the coals. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I um, I'm going to dive in, I guess. The, the, uh, <laughs> the funny thing about stuff like this is that when you've asked me to do it, my, I mean, and I'm a Titanic Cronenberg fan and right. At the time that I was really getting into uh, the literature of King and, and Lovecraft specifically, at the same time, I was obsessed with Cronenberg. And me and my best friend in, in high school, we just devoured every Cronenberg that came. And there was just that unbelievable run that he had. I mean, he's always making great movies and he's a master and I love him dearly. But that run from Rabid, The Brood, Scanners, Videodrome, Dead Zone, Fly, Dead Ringers, like that. Yeah, that run. It's insane is, is, when you lay is, it out like that. It's just unbelievable, yeah. and it is so personal. And they're such masterworks, and they will survive a millennia. I'm a hundred percent sure of that. And yeah. there he has done. He has done other other absolutely great work that I really love, and and has made movies that I love. Um, you know, up to I mean, I love Eastern Promises. He's still just cooking along with gas. Right. He's he's a great director, but Cosmopolis but, maybe not so much. Yeah, I mean, but that's, I like filmmakers <laughs> who are, that are willing to to fail. Like I like filmmakers that are willing to just throw the stuff at the wall in order to figure out their art for the next one. And you yeah, know, the always a little. Yeah, yeah, I, that's a that's what you should do as an artist. It's it's not a purity test, or it shouldn't be a purity test. But that run is just is so was so influential to me, and it's amazing that you've got the Dead Zone and Videodrome. Come, I mean, the video drum is, in my opinion, the, the best thing he's the greatest film he ever made. And it will, it is just a towering masterwork of cinema that is, it will never be repeated. But 
Uh, they both came out in the same year. They both came out in 83 when I was a senior in high school and ultimately, I guess, a freshman in, at NYU film school. And uh, it's funny because when you asked me about this, my memory was that I didn't love the book and I loved the movie. And when I went back and read the book and watched the movie, my opinion flipped. <laughs> really? That's interesting. Yeah. So my... I think it, it wasn't like the the I, I enjoyed the book when I read it. Like it was sort of during my Stephen King run. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I remember really enjoying the movie, and and you know, Walken was really like he was really bursting. So Deer Hunter, that um, you know, there was a lot of other cool stuff he was doing at the time. He's kind of bursting onto the scene, and he was he's an eminently watchable person, and he's everything he does is so specific and strange and great. Um, I remember being very captivated by his performance. Um, I remember loving Martin Sheen's performance. I love Brooke Adams. I loved her Body Snatchers. I loved her performance. Um, In fact, there's weird parallels to Body Snatchers, which I forgot about until I saw it again this last time, which we can get into later. But even with the same actress, which is like super weird. But um, but I didn't. It's funny. I didn't love it this time. I I I really really enjoyed the book when I went back to the book, and I remembered. Like I remember being a kid and I remember like what an indelible memory it was for me when Greg Stilson kills that dog. Like, yeah, right off. I, the remember, <laughs> I remember reading that like it was yesterday as a kid, you know, um, I was just like, oh, Jesus. It was just so that whole sequence is just a masterwork of literature, like of the whole pulling up to that, that house, that whole first person perspective of a psychopath, kind of like Jim Thompson's The Killer Inside Me or other Mm-hmm. instances I can think of where you do really are in the head of someone who isn't well. It just had such a profound impact on me when I was young and it was really fun to go back and read it, but I forgot how much, how good the book is actually. It's really good. <laughs> so, it's funny you bring up the thing about the dog because my wife's thing, like when my wife and I got married, uh, she had not read a lot of King and I was, you know, I, I had read all the King. And so um, over time I sort of, you know, talked her into, well, give this one a shot and see what you think and, and try this one out. She had a she had a real bad experience reading a King book when she was much younger and was just mortified by uh, the content of it. I don't know what book it was, but whatever it was, like, just threw her off. She wasn't into it. But one of her things now is like if we're watching a King movie, which I've been doing a lot because of this podcast, is uh, the idea that a, the bad guy kills a dog is like a recurring theme. And it happens a lot. Like I had forgotten that in the book, Stilson kills that dog. But there's there's a, a somewhat similar scene in Eyes of the Dragon where one of the one of the two brothers like kicks a dog to death that he finds like around the moat of the uh, city or castle or whatever the fuck. And then in it, the most disturbing scene King has ever written, in my opinion, is the there's like a kid that's like killing puppies by putting them in a refrigerator in a junkyard in right. it in the book. Yeah. And that fucked me up for days when I read it, <laughs> you know, she's not, she's not wrong. Like that, that is sort of like shorthand in, in Stephen King's world of, you know, this, this guy's guy bad news. Yeah. 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 Like, but it's kind of upsetting as a, as a dog owner, you know, cause I love dogs, you know, yeah, but, but, but I mean, I but he's not writing. I mean, he's not writing. You pornographically know, about it you know no it, but nor i mean when you pick up a stephen king book you know you're not reading a kind of a lilting hillside romance either so. <laughs> yes true <laughs> I mean, true what do, you, what do you expect him to do it's not um it's not like jack ketchum levels of of yeah. uh, awful 
Uh, yeah. but, but, uh, I think it's, I think it's probably affecting her differently now because we own, we have, we have three dogs and, right. um, she was always a cat person. So I think she's more sensitive to it now, kind of in the same way that if you have kids, you're suddenly sensitive to seeing a, a child put in jeopardy in a, in a movie or whatever, but Suddenly, Georgie getting his arm ripped off at the beginning of it isn't as uh, fun, fun and games for you. Not as hilarious anymore. (laughs) Once you have a toddler. Yeah. 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 I mean, his stuff has bite. It it does. And it's it, it, you know, has a palpable bite to it. And I think that's what captured me when I was when I was young, Um, you know, was that level. And there are things in the movie. And, you know, and the movie's got great stuff in it. I mean, it is Cronenberg at the end of the day, but it, it, there are things in the movie that are, are really masterfully done, uh, like Dodd's um, uh, suicide. Suicide? And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That whole sequence. Death, death by incredible. scissors in the mouth. Yeah. 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 And <laughs> yeah. that, that fucked me up when I was, I mean, I was like, that's not, that's just something that everyone, some people are scared of spiders. Some people are scared of snakes. Everyone has a primordial fear of that. Right. So it's just just something very primordial about about dying that way. I'll tell you what what's really effective about that that sequence is the setup, right? Because you spend you you see him like position the scissors, you see him, you're like, what what's he doing? In the book, he just cuts his own throat. Yeah. Right. It's it's a fairly simple yep. you know, he kills himself. In the book, he doesn't have anything to do with scissors, like he's a strangler. Um, but in, in the movie, since they're like, oh, we will give him this Jallo like, you know, <laughs> weapon that's, you know, uniquely him. It's these, you know, very pointed, uh, thin scissors and he positions it in the hamper. So it's locked into place. He like puts his hands behind his head, you know, and he's like, gets ready for it. And, but the, the cherry on top, the thing that really, you know, skeeves me out about it is when Cronenberg cuts to the body whenever Tom Skerritt busts in the door and he's still twitching. The body is twitching from yeah. whatever the impact <laughs> of, of that, like he's clearly gone, he's dead, but like his limbs are twitching from the, the trauma of what he just did to himself. Yeah. Yeah. And Cronenberg likes things that are twitching. Right? Yes. He does. <laughs> There's always lots of twitching and big Twitch fan that Cronenberg. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's usually Michael Ironside in some form of twitching, but it's, yeah, <laughs> someone else had to do that in this case. It's funny you bring that up because, um, it, it is a Cronenberg movie, but it's also like, if, if you told me, like, if I had a clean slate, I didn't know about this movie. And you said, uh, David Cronenberg directed a Stephen King adaptation. Which one do you think it is? the dead zone would be very low on the list right. of, you know, titles I would expect him to tackle, especially at that point in his career. You know, it, this is, this is the point where Cronenberg is, is basically establishing the body horror genre and he's, right. you know, becoming the the superstar of it. No one's ever done it better. And there's just, you know, you read the dead zone and there's, there's not much of that to it. So it's, I think it's, one of the things that's really interesting about this movie to me is that it's not an obvious choice for him. He's still got his touches in there, but it's it's not like, you know, Videodrome or fucking no, even, I, even Existence or something like that, you know. Yeah, I mean you can kind of feel the pull towards a more main, towards trying to make some more mainstream films and it's interesting right. to me that that because I don't think anyone's career, I mean there are certain people who are still controlling that to some degree, but you know, even if you read biographies of Kubrick, his his trajectory was still all over the place. There were movies he was trying to make, couldn't make. He'd have fallow periods, all of the rest of it. But he, you know, he's he's had a pretty he had a pretty consistent career. He made less movies, 
with, with Cronenberg, you can feel that pull towards more a more mainstream thing. And what's interesting to me about that era for him, because I, I was watching him so closely at that time, because by then I was a film student and Cronenberg was one of my very, very favorite directors. In fact, I remember running into Martin Scorsese on the street. I lived in Midtown and he was, I think he was mixing at, at Magno or something, which was like this over on 8th Avenue. And I didn't know him, but I was—I remember I was walking off the subway, I ran him on the street, and, and just talked to him for a minute, and told, you know, told him I was a big fan. But we ended up talking about Cronenberg. I just read an interview with Scorsese. We were talking about how much he loved Cronenberg, and I was just obsessed with Cronenberg at the time. And yeah. it was really fun to stand on a sidewalk at ten at night and talk to Scorsese about Cronenberg. But how much we just both loved Cronenberg, and that was it. It was like a one-minute conversation. Good I lord! Left, I left him alone. But it, but it is interesting to me that by then he went he went Videodrome. Dead Zone, and then The Fly. And The Fly is a absolutely a balls-out body horror movie, but it's also by far the most mainstream thing he had done mm-hmm. um, in terms of taking his really crazy-ass body horror, gore-fest, um, you know, wheels-off-the-bus stuff that he normally did and made it mainstream. And so it's, it's you know, he's a very calculated guy, and I don't think he could have planned it this way because I don't think life or Hollywood works this way. But you can see in him this desire to like, how do I reach a, a, you know, how do you make these movies that like regular people watch, you know? And, uh, and dead zone is like that first one in a way of just like, you know, what is a, how do I just make like a regular picture? And he was, he was working with Jeff Bohm, who I worked with on lost boys um, and got to know pretty well who wrote, he wrote lost boys and he wrote the screenplay for this. And, uh, and so you can see him just kind of like, you know, Cronenberg comes to Hollywood kind of. You know? <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm thinking about it. When was the last time Cronenberg actually did anything that you could call body horror? It's been a minute, right? You know, because he just passed it all to his son. His son's doing right. all that now. <laughs> Fuck, his son is talented as hell, though, and I'm yeah, I'm, he is. Yeah, I'm really excited to see Possessor. I mean, Crash, I had elements of that. Sure, um, you know, that, that, that was what, like ninety seven, ninety eight, though. Yeah, like, ninety six, ninety seven. Yeah, somewhere. In yeah, there. yeah. The um, Naked Fight and Eastern Promises for sure. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I love that movie. That's such a good. Oh, movie. me too. That so, history yeah. of there's violence. There's always going to be like touches. Yeah, so you good. know, there's always going to be those elements. I think, but yeah, man, I would be so excited if Cronenberg was like, "All right," you know. I'm like, <laughs> I'd have no idea how old he is now. Like, yeah. he's got to be in his 70s, right? Like, he's. I think he's he owes be- the world scanners too. In, in my personal <laughs> could you imagine if he was just like, <laughs> I would literally serve <laughs> coffee, uh, assuming that we're ever allowed back on sex again without a mask on. I would- <laughs> Good I be, Lord. I would be just scuttling around in the background doing whatever they wanted me to do. Can you imagine Cronenberg's coronavirus inspired <laughs> inspired film. I always wanted I always wanted to do, uh Cronenberg to do like a Lovecraft uh movie, like a straight up Lovecraft adaptation. Right. I'd be curious yeah. to see him applying his sensibilities to the idea of cosmic horror. I think would be really interesting. God, I would love it if he just you know, at this stage, which is like, look, I only have a few years left. I'm going balls out on this next one and it's going to be real wild. And, you know, <laughs> our blood budget is completely out of control like that. Would, yeah. Oh, man, that would be exciting. But yeah. So, but yeah, Alex, I, I, I agree with you that the novel is great. I, I revisited it leading up to this as well. Um because I'm a, an extremely slow reader, which is uh, probably not the best trait to have when you have a podcast talking about books every week. Um, I've been kind of leaning on audiobooks. 
yeah. uh, to help me uh, uh, get through some of this stuff. And the one that I listened to was James Franco reading it. And he did a great job it, as an aside. The funny thing is, though, is like he has one version of a foreign accent that he can do. And that's oh, his no. Tommy Wiseau accent from <laughs> <laughs> Disaster Artist. And right. uh, uh, so every time he read his uh, Wyzak, the the Polish doctor, it, it was like Tommy <laughs> Wiseau was was advising, you know, Johnny Smith about whether or not he would kill Hitler. You that's know, funny. We get time travel. Um, I had no idea. But one Frank of the things that, that really struck me on this go through was just something that the book does uh, in a better way than I think the movie does is is kind of underline that tried and true stereotype of the gift is a curse right. um, uh, in a way that is probably the best I've ever seen done uh, because all Johnny wants is his life back. That's all. That's all he wants. He wants to be a teacher. He doesn't want to, you know, be the psychic guy. He doesn't want the publicity, none of that stuff. Uh, he just wants to, to be a normal guy again. And uh, every time, but you know, his conscience won't let him, not use his gift to help people. But every time, every single time he does it, it hurts him. The big example of that is he uncovers the, the serial killer in castle rock. He uncovers uh, Frank Dodd say, you know, saves countless, you know, future victims. But by doing so the publicity of him helping, uh, he was about to go back to teach again. And that's all he wanted to do in the, the board canceled that, you know, uh, because they didn't want the quote unquote psychic on staff or whatever. And so his personal life took a hit whenever he, he, uh, uh, you know, was, had that press conference and it killed his mother when his mother was watching it. It's like every single thing that he's, that he does that where he tries to help somebody, he pays a big personal price. It, It is, it is a very, fascinating dynamic that that king has and he sticks with it through the entire book yeah i agree i i um i love the the consequences um i love the build uh the the thing that that i guess i just couldn't figure out how to make it work in the film the thing i really miss in the movie from the book is the actual dead zone itself is this notion of the the whole thing manifesting in a tumor that he has, um, that's, you know, and that's very Cronenberg-y, so I'm really surprised he didn't use it. <laughs> yeah, for real. Um, he's got this kind of actual mani- physical manifestation of his his power that is killing him. Right. Um, and so it's very specific. It's like kryptonite. And I think to be fair to Cronenberg and to Jeff Bohm, I, I, looking at it now, all these years later, which is somewhat more of an understanding of the mecha- mechanics, how screenwriting works, is, is it's a very hard book t- to adapt. And I, I think that they 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 did a really good job, but I think the film would probably have been better. And this is why I do why I like what Kubrick did. If they had not tried to hew so close to the to the it, the the movie to me this time really felt like a digest of the book. Like here's a really short burst of this sequence. Here's a really short burst of this sequence. Um, and so some things really get short shrift and almost don't even make sense. They they come and go so quickly. Um, and Stilson is just not there enough. You know, it's just, mm, just yeah. I don't think Sheen shows up until the last half hour of the movie or 40 minutes, maybe. And um, the book is so good at showing you the shadow side of of a, of a, a visionary and, um, you know, the kind of reckless, all id psychosis of someone because, you know, that character has his own kind of visions and, and his own kind of sight of where he thinks he should be and how the world should be. And, 
Um, and they run like kind of in parallel tracks through the book in a way right. uh, that I really love and, and really miss in the film. And I, and I understand the the challenges of, of turning this into a film, but it, it, it's a movie for me more of like really great moments and great performances. Cause there are both of those things across the board. than it is like a really solid telling. Um, that was my experience with it this time. I think they do some smart things though. Uh, I mean, there, there's some, some stuff that like tying Sarah and her husband directly to Stilson versus, yes, I like that versus yeah. having it be some random thing where, you know, her husband's like a, an up and coming young Republican, yeah. you know, guy who's kind of in politics. And, and it feels like that that was there. Like King thought about it and started it and then just like went off yeah. and, you know, uh, cause like in the, the book he, he holds up, it's the same ending where he shields himself with the child. And of course you go, why wouldn't that be Sarah's child? Why wouldn't that be the, somebody that has a personal connection to Johnny, you know, in that moment? Like, of course that makes so much sense. Yeah. There's a few smart things like that. Uh, I also think that, that um, making it more of a drastic uh, vision that he has in, in the movie, he like clearly sees Stilson launching the nukes. Right. That that is the thing that's going to start World War Three. The missiles are flying. Hallelujah. Right. That's the that that is a definitive clear cut thing. And in in the book, it's more of he's just sees him become president and like has an inkling he might start World War Three. Right. It's like it's a much more vague. Um, uh, But then on the other side, with, with the tumor, the tumor that's killing him, that gives johnny uh ticking clock to do something about it you know which which is his own fascinating moral conundrum where like you know Mm -hmm. is is this guy for sure going to be the evil that you know destroys the world or is he just kind of a bad politician is he a bad guy that's going to hurt people but you know no more than than a a regular bad politician that's you know gotten us into vietnam or whatever you know yeah it's like Yeah, you know, but you know, he has a ticking clock because he knows he is dying from this from this tumor. So if he's going to do something about it, he has to do something. And uh, you know, I don't know. I I feel like the the movie, especially in the second half, streamlines a lot of things. Um, that's also the case with the tutoring stuff. And in, in the book, he's tutoring a, a high school student, and instead of you know seeing him die in a in a, a skating accident, you know, it's a fire and on his graduation day or whatever. Yeah, I agree. I think that I think that's a, a really good point. I think that the back half of the movie is really effective and fun. And the and similarly, the back the back section of the book gets a little rambly. He could kill Stilson, and he doesn't. He kind of like pulls a Hamlet and just kind of mulls around for a while, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> um, and doesn't really take any action. And I mean, he ends up like what in Phoenix, or you know, he he's kind of travels around and yeah. Um, it gets it gets a little bit more unfocused in that way, and the the movie, like I think, definitely and is more exciting and and ef- efficient in the back end. The whole back end of the film is really good. Like, and for me, like one you know, once Sheen shows up, it's just like it's off to the races. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it it ties together really nicely. And I love Herbert Lom. I think is really great. Oh and yeah, he, and he makes real. I mean, everyone's really this. Really, you know, Colleen Dewars has only got like two lines, and she's she's great, <laughs> completely unhinged. But but Lom is really good, and the scenes, the sort of whole idea of the clinic, which is very Cronenbergian. Um, <laughs> yep. Every movie of his had a clinic in, in that era. I don't. I think he, must <laughs> have, uh, he had one location where he's like, we're using the clinic. But uh, uh, but those scenes are really effective and and very sad and and tie 
you know, film is very good for that. You know, the whole notion of, of Lam's historical past and, you know, his, the kind of wartime kid that he was and all that stuff works really well, um, is very resonant in the film. It just didn't have as, as smooth a flow as I had remembered. And reading the book, I, I remembered why. Just the book is incredibly complicated and there's a lot of moving parts and it's hard to just, you know, cram that all into an hour and a half or so. Well, two things worth noting on that point is that Bohm was the first person to write a draft of the screenplay. It eventually got acquired by Dino De Laurentiis, who, you know, this is not his first appearance on his, on the show and will not be his last. He's always popping up from time to time. But uh, he was like, nah, I don't like the I don't like this one and had King write one. And then he he, he didn't like that one either. and was like, I thought it was too involved and convoluted. So they had uh, somebody else come on and write it, and that one didn't work out. So they they went back to Bohm's original draft, but King thought that, and this is a quote, uh, thought that uh, the changes that were made to the story, uh, quote, improved and intensified the power of the narrative. That's that's a somewhat rare thing for King to be saying in in response (laughs) to one of his adaptations. And I, I do agree with him. I, I agree with everything y'all have said about the fact that the novel is a different experience. But also, I think that the movie, if you're going to make a movie out of this book, this was probably the way to do it. And Bohm was, you know, here's another quote. He said, I saw it had great possibilities and agreed to do it. And then he said, King's book is longer than it needed to be. The novel sprawls and it's episodic. What I did was use that episodic quality because I saw the dead zone as a triptych. And when you look at it through that lens, if you're going to make, if you're, if, if this thing isn't going to be a mini series, if it's going to be a two hour movie, this is probably the right, the right way to do it and to, to consolidate it. So I think that it loses a lot in the translation, but I also think at the same time, it's also one of the better King adaptations. Yeah. I mean, I would agree that the, that it, it carries over like wholesale certain and then, and then makes them cinematic, you know, like you guys said about the, you know, the scissors weapon. Um, right. But it carries over a lot of very sort of King tropes that are specific to him. Even like the, you know, the gondola where Dodd uh, kills the girl that were that whole, mm-hmm. scene. that's a very King scenario. Um, yeah, the gazebo. Yeah. Yeah. The gazebo. Um, and that's not something you would see in, yeah, gondola would be, that's uh, don't look now, right? It's a different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> slightly, slightly. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's it's, a, it's another podcast chat. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, but that's a very King tableau and that whole sequence feels like something right out of one of his, his stories. And no, for sure. Um, and those are, those are very enjoyable and just, you know, and Watkins performance is not at all, I mean, at all how I read Johnny when I read the book, but it's it's yeah. great. It's absolutely right. Did you all movie. did you all know that he uh, that King wanted Bill Murray for that role? Yeah, oh, really? I read that. <laughs> yeah, that's that wild as hell. Ghost, about Ghostbusters era, Bill Murray. Imagine, yeah. imagine a Cronenberg movie, a Cronenberg Stephen King movie headlined by Bill Murray. Like <laughs> that it's hard is. To I am a huge Bill Murray fan. That is a, a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine it. Like, I just cannot. No, it's and unimaginable. A, That's why you can't imagine it. And that was yeah, sort like, of around the time he did Razor's Edge, right? Like, the, yeah, you know, yeah Bill Murray, and like where the know. Buffalo Rome and sure. You know. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. He's doing a series. Uh, I, I read, I also read that Cronenberg, his choice was Nicholas Campbell, uh, uh, who I guess didn't have enough star power for the studio, but he ended up casting him as Frank Dodd. So the guy who played, right. yeah, he's the oh. killer was, was his, his yeah. choice. And you can see it. Like you can see that that dude's got a quiet intensity yeah. to him. Yeah. And like, just, uh, you could see him being more reflective of the Johnny Smith of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. He's more like how you, I mean, cause he's an all American kind of every, I mean, that's hence the name Johnny Smith. He's supposed to be this kind of rubber stamp character <laughs> yeah. in a way that you can put whatever you want on, but he's all American. And that was definitely how I saw him. Sheen is, you know, he's perfect. Um, and uh, he's really good at playing presidents, whether he well, is. on the good side <laughs> or bad side. <laughs> yeah, I know. I love that he's like, yeah, the uh, Sorkin gone horribly wrong. But it's also, you know, it's it's it's, you know, people have spoken about the the prescience of the book in terms of Trump. And, you know, I don't I don't see that at all. I don't I mean, he the prescience is Reagan. It's a it's a much, much greater proximity to the era in which the book was written. Trump is not, I mean, Tom Cotton, I think is closer to a Greg Stolson's type. I think that, that Trump is not an idea. Trump is just a, you know, he's just a, I don't know, from New York. So he's like a, yeah, he's like a, you know. I was going to say, or one of the, the Huckabee children, right? right, They're known for killing dogs too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's just, he's not enough of an ideologue. He's too much of just a grifter. I don't think without other people whispering in his ear, Trump would have ended up where he was. I don't think he wanted to end up where he was. I don't think he's a man on a mission at all. He's the opposite of a man on a mission. No, I think he's fucking miserable. He's a careening Um, pinball, you know. Yeah, so Uh, he's more like face in the crowd than he is dead zone Greg Stilson. But but there is something to the populist angle that, you know, you're right, Reagan had uh, too, and he's a much better fit in in that kind of aw shucks personal demeanor and being, you know, a little bit more of a, a mad dog behind the scenes. Yeah. But I don't, but there's, but there is, there's weird parallels though. Like, like the fact that Stilson's campaign slogan is, is something he wears on, on a hat and is, you know, and it's like, you know, <laughs> it, I, there's, there's this really bizarre, you know, parallels to his populism and how he like surrounds himself with the bikers and the, you know, the, the strong, the strong types and, I, I see. I see it. I mean, yeah. King himself has said that he thinks that that uh, Trump is is uh, ten times worse than. <laughs> than no, I would uh, give him that. Than, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> purely um, political perspective. Yeah. Um, but I think that. Yeah, I think that that the menace of Stilson from the kicking the dog to to where he ends up is is you know a distinctly American political psychopath um, that is obviously yeah. you know, his his own. Um, and frankly, you know, luckily hasn't been seen. I mean, I mean, Joe McCarthy, I guess would be the, the probably right. the best, mm-hmm. uh, Roy Cohn, Joe McCarthy, people that, you know, that King would have been intimately aware of you know, from the time he was writing and, and that book. Um, but someone more shrewd and calculated and, and, and dangerous as a result. Great character though. Great character in the book, book and the movie. He's a great, he's well, a great. And then what's also something interesting is that, Stilson is like the evil side of the Jimmy Carter coin, right? Because they're both down to earth. Yeah, you know, you know, come from the, the you know, distinctly yeah. American. But one of them is what he presents himself to be, and the other one, you know, hides hides a, a monster underneath. Uh, and he even meets Johnny Smith meets Carter in the book. Like he he has this whole section where he's he's going and meeting all these politicians because he's wanting and shaking their hands mm-hmm. as they're on their their their. Uh, 
you know, uh, campaign tours. So he can kind of get a feel like he meets Reagan. He meet you know, he, right. but he meets Jimmy Carter and like Jimmy Carter is the only one that he meets where he's like, Oh, one, you're going to be president. I see it. And, uh, and like, he feels that deep down he's, he's a, he's a good man. Uh, but Stilson on the other hand, you know, it definitely, <laughs> definitely doesn't have that same feeling, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's interesting that, that Stilson's kind of the, the, the other uh, side of that coin. Yeah. I mean, and he's great at that. You know, King is great at, at, uh, having these very flesh and blood three dimensional characters that are also manifestations of of your psyche, <laughs> you know, or the id, and uh, and Stilson has, is very resonant, and Sheen is is you know he's a really good actor, and he's very good at kind of plumbing those depths, as well as he had been been as he had done on Apocalypse Now not long before that one. Yeah, yeah, it's fun that the like the the obvious germ of a, of an idea for this book was you know the baby Hitler question. Which you know they they deal with in the in the book and the movie. I guess since we're talking about it, like do you, do you all? Uh, maybe this is a stupid question to even ask because the answer is so obvious. But if you could go back and try uh, in time and and kill baby Hitler, would you do it? Yeah, and that's a, that's a funny thing in the book. It's that sequence is in the book as well. Mm-hmm. Um, much longer. It's like yeah. that question's raised by like three different people. Yeah, <laughs> I had a harder yeah. time with it in the movie, and I and I and I think. I don't know why it was a it was a little bump, but in the in the film I fa- I didn't find it I didn't find it audacious or implausible in the book. And I remember in the film it feels a little weird. Well, it's coming out of Herbert Lom, and and you kind of I had a, just a hard time believing that he felt that way. But it felt a little a little convenient, kind of where it comes because it acts as a catalyst because they needed to move things along at a faster pace. Right. So it acts as more of a catalyst to to Smith to be like, okay, I'm going to go and do this. Whereas there are so many very specific things in the book that drive him, you know, the car bombing of the, it's like an FBI agent, I guess, or whatever. The, the, yeah. There are all these kind of beats that are really cataclysmic um, that make him feel he, it's not, it's not a discussion. It's really a, a physical thing. And then, and it really drives him to, um, to do something that he thinks will probably also end his life, but it's a, it's a minor quibble. <laughs> Okay, but do you think like if either of y'all had the power to go back and stop like a terrible person from coming into power and you know you understand the question. Like do you think well, there, you could there, do this? There is a difference between having foresight of something that's going to happen in in your own timeline versus going back in time to kill somebody too in this hypothetical because sure. you know if if Hitler doesn't exist then maybe I never exist. Right. You know, just because, you know, if world war two never happens and, right. and you know, that changes everything, you know, mm-hmm. then things get, get weird and funky. O- obviously the pragmatic answer is yes. Of course, if you could take one life to save millions, millions. countless millions right. of lives, of course, you know, that you know, whether or not a, a human being can go see, you know, little, you know, adorable baby Hitler and, you know, <laughs> you know, put a, put a bullet in its head. Like, I, I don't know if you had, I, if I, I, I had absolute, no if I had absolute certainty, I would drop kick baby Hitler into a fucking cement mixer. Like no problem. <laughs> right. I'm sorry. Yes, it's a baby part of, I, of I time would, travel. That's, that's the problem. Though, I, I probably wouldn't enjoy it very much because it's still a baby at the end of the day. But I think absolutely. If it presented with that, 
you know, choice, you know, how about, how about you re reframe it? So we travel back in time and kill like, you know, art student, you know, college douche Hitler instead that might be a little bit easier. Okay. It's going to be harder. I can't kick a fucking college student into a cement mixer. They probably weigh like 150, 200 pounds, you know, uh, but but fine. Hitler was a little guy. You you wouldn't have any problem. It's murder. It's murder. At the end of the day, you know. I guess infanticide is is probably less uh, right. enjoyable. So I guess if in this scenario, if we have a time machine, we can set it to we have the DeLorean from Back to the Future, and you can set it to a specific hour. Yes, of course, we would probably set it to a a later setting. So it's you know not like, so. How many redos do you get? Like so, could you like try things like like the nonviolent approach where you like. Give them the right. Try to uh, talk them out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, try, try, you know, get, like, because nobody's born evil, right? So you, you fucking, you know, you, you be the cool uncle or whatever to, to little nephew Hitler and, and like, okay. What you're, right I just want to be clear that what you're pitching here is that you would go back in time and befriend baby Hitler, which <laughs> I don't know I is a good move a, on your part. I think part. we have a movie pitch that's kind of germinating here. <laughs> <laughs> And unfortunately, if that's what you guys do in Bill and Ted Three, then I, I really apologize for for stepping on your. <laughs> yeah. Anywho, the answer, of course, is pragmatically. If you know, we know how history played out, and you know, you take out one guy and you save so much suffering. Of course, of course, you have to do it. Sure. Yeah, I think it's a consequence thing. I mean, I like the 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 humanness of 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 where they put, and you talked about this at the very beginning of all this is, is the way, the way they place these, these issues into the con the moral conscious of a man is, is, is really effective. Like I like how King has thought that through that if you had this kind of power, the price would be ultimate. Um, and you do feel that through, you feel that through the book and the movie and Walken does a really good job of, of conveying that. Mm -hmm. I feel like. Um, yeah, he's he's reluctant to commit a murder. And I love the way the movie resolves that. It's the the photograph that that gets taken that takes him down. You know, it's it's yeah. not Johnny actually killing him. So he, he kind of gets it both ways there. And, right. and I guess the movie, too. But, you know, it's um, John, Johnny's act just reveals what he is. You mentioned uh, you know, right. uh, facing the crowd. Yeah. You know, it's not that dude didn't, you know, get assassinated to stop his power. He was just revealed, you know, for what he was. And totally. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't think that that really matters in today's politics, but I guess it <laughs> still mattered back then. <laughs> yeah. But it's also a center of good. It's that, you know, the notion that the world that Johnny lives in is, is inherently sane so that they, mm -hmm. the world itself would, would not allow someone like this to, to keep going. It's kind of the closest he gets to a happy ending in that way that the world is kind of resolved because there is a moment in the movie um, and I think, you know, obviously the, the Brooke Adams being in both body snatchers in this sort of probably sparked my brain, but even the, the first scene, the first scene where she comes to the door with her husband, it feels very body snatchers, the way that the husband plays the, the, the scene, it's all very like kind of dreamlike and, and strange. And, and that's very Cronenberg. Like that's much more like scenes in rabbit or the brood where everyday events just seem off. Um, in subtle mm -hmm. ways, and but it gets really ratcheted up for me by the time you you know you see them pamphleting and 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 act the actual event because Stilson's world is psychotic and everyone around it's, it's it's a Jim Jones thing right like everybody 
who is in support of him has drunk some kind of Kool-Aid. And to see Brooke Adams and her husband, like someone that Johnny is so close with, having drunk the, the Kool-Aid, it's very destabilizing. Um, and I like the way Cronenberg stages those scenes. I think they're, they're super effective. And those are the kind of the, t- the touches that you find in much more in, in the other movies of his, which are all those moments, like Scanners yeah. or whatever. Did you notice that obviously they couldn't have thought of it at the time because it was uh, a decade later when uh, Walken would appear in Sleepy Hollow, but uh, the the last lesson he gives is his classes uh, of reading The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. Then he would go on, of course, to play the Headless Horseman. It's it's an interesting little uh, trivia bit. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't think of that. I did I did enjoy the uh the couple of of uh Videodrome cameos that are in the film though. There's a there's uh what's his face? Peter Dvorsky, I think his name was, who he plays the smug journalist who in the press conference yeah. uh shakes his hand and he's got the great scene in Videodrome where his hand gets eaten by James oh Wood. shit! Wait. I never even made that connection. Yeah, same guy. And then uh, the the actor who plays Barry Convex um, is the journalist that gets threatened by Stilson. You know, they they he break, they break into his office. That whole scene. That's yeah. That's the guy from uh, Videodrome as well. Um, I was really hoping Michael Ironside was going to show up in this movie. I was very, <laughs> very Walking in Ironside, battling it out. Come on! He was yeah. playing the frozen lake. Uh, he is actually the. <laughs> right. ice. Uh, he's a chameleon, that Michael. Yeah, yeah he was the you he was the know. gazebo. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was a fail. I feel like out on the casting department side. But if you had the power that Johnny has to be able to like touch someone and see their future, how often would you use it? Would you be careful of this, like you don't want to do it, or would you? This is a party trick, and you're just doing it fucking left and right. I don't know. I mean, I think the film makes the the book makes this and film, I guess, make a good case for why. <laughs> Why you wouldn't want not to do? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think it says. I mean, that's what King's a master of. Like, you know, here's something you could do. Now I'm going to show you why you would just go horribly wrong. Wouldn't you be curious though? I don't know. Well, well, well Alex, do you think you like if you had the power, would you would you do it? Like, how often would you break that one out? Uh, well, I think I think that it's it's the impulse would be to do it all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, all all the time. And uh, in all different circumstances, but I think that uh, you could see it going horribly wrong. <laughs> you could see everybody. <laughs> you could see this being the end game for everyone, probably within a much shorter time, like within a day. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> within a day, you get to like whoever's about to launch the apocalypse. And but yeah, I, of course you'd want to do it. You'd want to do I, it constantly. I feel like that's my that would be my approach to it. Like I'd be like, I'd wake up one day and I could do this and be like, holy shit. Like, this is great. And then, like, I would do this, like, for three or four friends. And then I would do the fourth one. And it would turn out, like, this friend has been talking just mad shit about you or something, you know? <laughs> or, like, you know, there are turns some out you're, dead dogs buried in, under yeah. his porch. Yeah. And you'd be like, fuck, this is a bummer now. And, and you wouldn't want to do it anymore. The scenario that I could, like that always place myself in when I'm either watching the movie or rereading that scene in the book is when, whenever that smarmy journalist that we were talking about is like giving him shit about, you know, like, Oh, you're, you're a fake. You can't really do it. And he's like, all right, come here. And then he just fucking destroys (laughs) him in front of everybody. Right. Like there's that little bit of like, you know, knocking uh, an arrogant asshole down a peg or two, you know, aspect to, to that going, no, this is what you really think. And this is what you're really afraid of. And now I just aired your laundry in front of everybody. (laughs) Maybe, maybe next time, keep your fucking mouth shut. You You can blow up people's spots like left and right. 
it'd be the ultimate curse right now because nobody can nobody seeing anybody or and you can't touch anybody so that's true i don't know if you you guys i mean you probably did but that that i didn't remember at all from when i saw the film when it came out and it certainly doesn't feel this way in the book is the parallels to taxi driver hmm there's a lot like, and I don't think they're intentional. I think it's just a, a kind of a, an emblem of the times that these things were, were crafted out of, but you've got this, you've got this loner guy who's obsessed with an unattainable woman who is tied up in a political campaign. Um, I mean, there are scenes that are really similar just visually, in right. terms of, you know, there's Albert Brooks is kind of Brooke Adams husband. There's all these kind of different strange Holy shit. But it, yeah, it just it was a it was a it struck me as I watched the film. It had never occurred to me before. But um, knowing that that Walken and De Niro uh, were close, you know, you knew that 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 Walken would have been aware of of you know very aware of, of De Niro's work, but um, and of Schrader too, Scorsese, obviously. That's but a yeah. great observation. I never yeah, would have yeah, made that connection. But both that's... both characters die bloodily. That's interesting. Yeah, no, I, I never I never put that together, but. You're well, definitely right. Walken plays him with more more of a kind of psycho edge than Smith is in the book, you know. So it has kind of more of that that kind of rollicking New York street lunatic kind of vibe underneath the the surface, which I guess also may, may have sparked it. But when the ice is going to break, you have to like say it emphatically. You can't just <laughs> right. <"Yes!" laughs> he's such a he's age. such a singular performer. There is no one else that you know. There's a lot of actors where they're more or less interchangeable. Walken is a guy like there's no one else that's quite like Walken. And he is just fascinating to watch any movie I've ever seen with Walken. You like, you can't take your eyes off of him. He's he's. And and when he was younger, I think he was even stranger to look at. Yeah. Like he, he looks otherworldly to me. Like he doesn't look like one time I was at a, a, a screening at South by Southwest and I shoulder checked accidentally Jake Gyllenhaal while I was coming out of a bathroom and he was going into it. And we both sort of like, you know, you know how it is. You sort of rebound back for a second, make eye contact with the person. And I'm like, holy fuck, that's Jake Gyllenhaal. And he was the most, he was the most spectacularly handsome human being I've ever seen in my life. He looked like another species. Like he looked like uh, something that had been made in a computer to be like the perfect human being. You know, and Walken is sort of like that in the sense that he's, especially when he's young, he just looks like, he just doesn't look entirely human to me. He looks, um, he's got kind of had that Bowie and Tilda. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Animal, sort of primal animal thing. I guess folks like that tend to end up on screen. You know, you don't see it. You don't see a Bowie. Or a Jake Gyllenhaal or a fucking Christopher Walken, like waiting tables at Chili's. You know, <laughs> those those guys tend to end up in front of the camera because they have that raw magnetism and that like, you know, definitive singular look. Yeah. And Walken is, is also so and I remember I remember him from the Anderson tapes. I think it was the first time I ever saw him. And he's not doesn't have a huge part. And I mean, probably a lot older than you guys, but he doesn't, he doesn't have a huge part in that movie. But he's very, very memorable, and and I think that you know, knowing a little bit about his acting history, he's such an idiosyncratic mix of. I mean, he came up like a song and dance guy, so he's really yeah. live, and he has this sort of dancer grace to him, mixed with this kind of kid from Queens sort yeah, of tough yeah. toughness. But he's got the most idiosyncratic way of reading lines, and and I I think what's what I love about him is that it's not 
it's not uh, pretentious. Like it's not mannered. He's not doing it on purpose. I mean, there's some actors who you can see they're like pausing at certain places and, and mm-hmm. I get it. Like you want to do that sometimes. So each reading isn't rote, but he just has this like naturally very strange way of saying just any normal sentence, which is why I think people like doing impressions of him. <laughs> right. Um, and there are some very choice readings in this film. Like there's a couple yes. of scenes <laughs> that would almost have been banal um, had it not had that walk-in thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think the one that comes to mind is the, is the scene where, uh, with Brooke Adams, I think it's the last time they see each other, um, after they have like a dalliance and, you know, and it's a moving scene and she's really good, but he, he's just so weird <laughs> and, and his, but it's real, but he seems like a human being, just a strange human being. Um, but it's, it gives the scene this whole other spin. Um, and it works very, very well. I mean, I think that, you know, a large part of the success of the film is, is the, you know, the genuine strangeness of Cronenberg and the genuine strangeness of Walken do, they do work very well together because, you know, it didn't, that did not work for, um, was it the Doug Trumbull movie, which I think was not, was around the same time, wasn't it? The one with Natalie Wood. And in, and in Dead Zone, it really does work well. I mean, it's, it's, it, the idiosyncrasy feels natural and, and right to the character, right to Cronenberg's world and. It's a, and it is kind of its own thing. The way, and that's what I like about Nicholson's performance in The Shining, which I know is often disparaged just because of how different it is from Torrance in the book. But I also lo- love that because it's like Kubrick's id just like unleashed, you know, and it, yeah, it, it sure. so well fits the that particular telling of that story. Jack does have that same idiosyncratic, you know, delivery of of lines. And yeah. Walken is Walken is in my mind. He's Long Island plus William Shatner. It's it's <laughs> it's the Shatner you know pronunciation, but it's the Long Island accent you know. And right. But what's also interesting that they do with him in the movie is they give him a silhouette. You know, the cane, the upturned mm-hmm. collar on the mm-hmm. long jacket, the long, tall, thin guy. If you saw a silhouette of that, you would probably recognize. You totally. know, that that's the guy from the dead zone. If you see a silhouette of Nicholson, you know, hunched over yeah, holding the ax, you know, that's yeah. from, yeah. from him. You know, I, I think you could maybe do that with, uh, with Kathy Bates and misery yeah. And, yeah. and Pennywise probably, but like beyond that, like what other King characters could you, could you imagine like that? So it's like, you know, there, there is something that, you know, the costuming in, in the movie is, is exceptional. Cause I know, you know, I can't read the book now without picturing, yeah. Um, picturing uh, Johnny with that jacket, you know, with the high collar and the upturned thing and the the big hair, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. It's very distinct, but it's also very natural. I mean, it works. It, it's very fluid to the story and the in the way he's telling the story. Before we wrap up, did, did any of you guys ever watch the uh, series, the Dead Zone series? I did not. Nope. Anthony Michael Hall, right? Right. Anthony Michael love, Hall was Johnny Smith and uh, Sean Patrick Flannery, who was mm-hmm. young Indiana Jones, was still No, I like I like him a lot, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, li- listen, it, it's hard to recommend some, you know, that that was TV at a time before, like right in that cusp when TV was turning into something else. So it's yeah. I think it was like a USA show or something. So sure. it's got that that little bit of like, you know, late 90s, early aughts TV feel to it. But in terms of what you were talking about, you know, it, as a Johnny and Greg Stilson being uh, parallel characters like that show really delves into that mm. side of things. Um, and they kind of like at the beginning, Stilson's actually 
like a, a nice likable guy like you can and you see his descent more into to madness over the show it's not a bad show but it's hard to recommend because it's you know it's a five or six season commitment and five or six seasons know. i think yeah. of a dead zone series and i'm imagining like almost like a quantum leap thing where at the beginning of every episode like johnny shakes hands with someone and it was like i gotta take him out like <laughs> <laughs> like, Brad, like oh boy user. He's at a <laughs> diner, like he's at a fucking right. Denny's, you know, and the waitress. <laughs> She's going to not That's return not a library book, you know, yeah. like they would have to, you know, it couldn't be like a, a nuclear war every time. So that would be progressively like smaller scale infractions. That right. would be very funny. That's funny. Yeah. yeah I mean, but there was, you know, I don't mind any of that sort of production value slash tonal stuff if, if it works. I mean, I remember loving the Salem's Lot series when i was a totally kid. it's yeah, fantastic yeah. and and it's terrifying and it's uh you know if the if this if the telling is good it'll hold up for sure um i this is usually the point in the show where we would ask you to 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 plug whatever you have in the works next but i i think when this airs everyone's gonna know damn well exactly what you have going on <laughs> uh, uh they will be you know caught in that alex winter fever do you have any future projects you want to you want to uh, sort well, of the, the the doc that that we were going to release when COVID hit was Zappa, which I've been working on for going on six years, Good and Lord. Uh, uh, really, in fact, that was a South by Southwest premiere um, that was all locked and loaded, and we all had right. to cancel our flights like five days before we were heading down there. Um, and I love that festival and I love Austin. Um, and I was really looking forward. We had a very robust tour planned. Uh, we were in festivals all over the world running all the way through the fall. So I'm really looking forward to getting that out. It's a epic story and uh, one that I've been wanting to tell for a very long time. And I'm really, really happy with the way the film turned out. So um, it looks like that is that deal is closing up right now, right now being a little ways from when you guys um, put this out. So, um, I think we will have announced our rollout schedule and all of that by then. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to people seeing, seeing Zappa and then I'm working on a whole bunch of, of stuff right now for, you know, what's next from my, in my doc universe. So, uh, well, I, you're really great at, uh, Adam and, uh, I highly recommend everybody check out show biz oh, kids thank you. Oh, because yeah. it's not, we've seen so much about the predatory behavior and in Hollywood and all this stuff. And I went into that kind of going, all right, well, here's another stab at, at that. But it, it, you do, you take an angle that's decidedly different where you're exposing the, the challenges of, young stardom uh, and you're and you of course touch on the the dangers inherent in uh having your you know child working at such a young age uh you know around uh, strange adults but but it, it is a much more thorough and deep look at the industry and at you know child stars themselves yeah i hadn't i just hadn't seen it um, done. And I, and I like all the stories that are getting done. Uh, there's many stories to tell. I very much like, um, Dan Reed's, um, uh, Michael Jackson doc and yeah, uh, it's hard is, to watch, but it's, it's, yeah, but it's, it's, it's incredible. Incredible. yeah, but, but really necessary and, uh, and very well done, but I hadn't seen this. I hadn't, you know, I grew up as a child actor. I started professionally very, very young and I acted every day, all day for years, all the way through, my teens. And, and I knew that that experience was really specific um, and much, 
you know, had m- many more facets to it than, than we were used to seeing. And, um, so I, yeah, I'd always wanted to tell the story, but tell it through the eyes of those who had done it. And, uh, I was really, really grateful. I was really grateful we got to make it. I'd been trying to make it for a while and I put it down. It wasn't really, I was really, wasn't really having much luck getting it financed. And I, I was very specific about the way I wanted to do it. And I didn't really want to do it a different way. So, you know, time kind of came back around as they do often with these things. And, uh, I was able to get it done like pretty much exactly the way I'd hoped and also got people like, you know, Mara Wilson and Evan Rachel Wood and Jada and Todd Bridges to actually, you know, take part and be willing to be intimate and honest. And, um, and that was really fantastic for us. One thing I really appreciated about that was that it was like, I went into it sort of bracing for some real rough shit, you know, sort of thinking along the lines of uh, the Michael Jackson doc that you talked about. Like I thought it was going to be, you know, pretty upsetting and it's upsetting in, in its own ways, not as graphically as that is, but I also found it sort of hopeful in the end. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's that's absolutely a problem that needs to be addressed. You know, the way that that kids are treated in the industry. And um, uh, hopefully this will bring some attention to that. But at the same time, I appreciated that you showed these these folks, some of whom have had really fucking rough lives and really rough lives in public, too, like turned out all right and have kids of their own and they're they're raising them right. You know, you used the word necessary earlier, and I, I do feel that Showbiz Kids is, is, is a necessary watch for everyone, but it's also like not a thing that you're just going to feel awful after after watching it. And I, I really appreciated that about it. Oh, good. Yeah, that was that was certainly the intention, but it was also, you know, it mirrored my experience and, um, and it mirrored the experience of a lot of people who I knew in the world. And I think it's hard a hard pill for some people to swallow and I understand why, and some of that's coming from a good place, but it's just like, oh, come on, you know, let's see more of the tabloid stuff. Let's see more of the bottom out. Let's see more of, and the fact is, is that for many of us, if not most of us, um, you know, you roll up your sleeves, you do some work, you find your way out the other end and you have a great life. And, you know, not to be, you know, f- kind of cavalier about it, but it's, you know, it's a lot like life, right? A lot of people yeah. have you know, really heavy trauma or things that happen to them either in childhood or early adulthood or whatever. And they have to get work through and they come out the other end and, you know, it's not the end of the world, but it is also, it has affected you in all of these different ways. And it's worth examining that. Like what, what has made you the person that you are? Um, I know for myself, I mean, I am who I am because of the experiences that I had and, and, you know, and in a certain way, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm not grateful that I had experienced the trauma that I did. I wouldn't go that far. Um, but I have been able to, you know, learn from those experiences and process those experiences in a way that have shaped me in, into doing things that, I, that are very meaningful to me. So both, you know, in like the way I parent or just operate in the normal world to the types of things I do in my career. I mean, that's just, you know, that's just the trajectory of life, right? Right. <laughs> totally. Well, thank you so much for uh, for sitting down and talking to us about this. This was uh, this was great. Yeah, it was really great. It was really fun to go back and and you know I like how movies change in your mind over time. I like how books sure. change in your mind over time. It was a fun exercise to. I, I was such a King person and such a Cronenberg person in such a significant way when I was young. It was fun to revisit them and to not have those experiences be the same. You know, they had, yeah. they had shifted in their own way. That's cool. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, thanks again. Great. 
thanks you guys everybody be well and healthy out there i look forward to seeing both of you at some point in the real world yes of course (laughs) all right many thanks to alex winter for joining us for that very lively chat bill and ted face the music premieres this friday so you can watch that from the safety of your own home or in a drive-in or if you're a crazy bastard and go to one of those open movies theaters you can go do that too I'm screening at my backyard plex this Saturday. Very excited about it. We're all going to get very high beforehand. I just want to go on record with that. Like, I'm I'm so excited for this goofy ass movie to come along right now at this time. I would I would kill to see a new movie. the the new The new stuff that's come out recently hasn't really uh, rustled my jimmies. I haven't really been into it. So. I have a vision in my mind of like there's like a neighborhood kid that like goes onto his rooftop with binoculars and like one of those like listening cones or whatever, watching some of the crazy shit you throw on throw on in your backyard. They must the neighbors must be aware. The screen is very large. It's like a twelve foot screen and it's taller than the fence. So they're aware that it's going on, but um also my neighbors are dicks. So <laughs> And you watch a lot of porn. <laughs> yes. I think the last thing we watched was Gone in 60 Seconds. Pretty loud. It's a very quiet movie, so I'm sure they were fine with <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. You know, a lot of people in the area around us, they're doing like parties and shit, which, you know, that's between them and their God. But I can hear, well, then again, we have people in the backyard, but we're all spaced out. And so I would imagine that on the other side of the fence, that sounds like a party, but we're being safe about it. So maybe, maybe I'm, I'm being presumptuous. Maybe my neighbors are also uh, keeping it safe. No, but. I have that next door app. Uh, all of our neighbors are monsters. That's that's just how it is. <laughs> that also would not surprise me. So next week on the KingCast, we will be taking a peek behind the rows with Malachi and the boys. We are going into yes. Children of the Corn. Very exciting. Fun guest for this one. Uh, it is a, a female guest. I will say that. She has had a movie come out in the last year. Hmm. It's a good episode, and uh, Children of the Corn is long overdue. We should have gotten to this before now, but um, that's how it that's how it shook out. But it's a good right. one, yes. Right. And then uh, next this Friday, when are we? This Friday. What is what even is time anymore? This Friday we'll have a uh, a bonus episode of some sort for our Patreon followers, and I just want to remind everyone that you can sign up for a steady stream of bonus episode content on the Kingcast Patreon. That's patreon.com backslash the king cast right now we've got an exclusive interview with tom jane that really must be heard to be believed we have a couple of commentaries on there we've got a bonus episode or two that you have not heard yet if you're only listening to the main feed uh come join us over there there's all kinds of listening material for you to get through and um, occupy your day with while everything else is going up in flames yes yes a, a little bright nerdy stephen king spot there indeed Sweet. All right. So we'll see you guys next week for sure for Children of the Corn. Malachi and the boys. Yes. See you then, folks. <laughs> <laughs>